Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 4 of the EdTech to the Future podcast. I'm Sean Ward, doctoral student at Boise State University and instructional technology coach for Prince William County Schools in Virginia. So glad you're with us. This week we're going to talk about the value and validity of qualitative research. Stay tuned, we'll get started right after this. Welcome back, everybody. So glad you're with us, and thanks for listening on your favorite podcatcher app. Uh, the EdTech to the Future podcast is available on several different platforms, including Anchor, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, and Radio Public. So glad you're with us. So this week, I kind of wanted to talk about... Um, we're, we've dived into our fall semester at Boise State. We're a few weeks into that now, as well as a few weeks into the school year. So while it's been a busy couple of weeks, and topic that we're learning about in one of my classes is the idea of qualitative research. And um, we've been doing some reading, and this class in particular is focused on qualitative research as opposed to quantitative research. Um, and we read an article. Um, first of all, qualitative research, what is it? It's defined by Cresswell as a type, complex type of research that's both inductive and deductive in its analysis. It emphasizes the voices of the participants in their natural settings. It contributes to literature and includes the reflexivity of the researcher in their description and interpretation of the problem. So when I hear that and when I think about the quantitative is kind of more the your numbers and statistical, um, how well they do on a test. It's kind of easier to get data from the quantitative type of research. I think of qualitative, on the other hand, is the type of research that gives you the thoughts, feelings, and perceptions behind those numbers that you attain on the quantitative side. Uh, in one of the articles we read, Tracy, in 2010, described qualitative research as being like a crystal, she says, with various facets representing the aims, needs, and desires of the various stakeholders. That's kind of an interesting visual. That's kind of interesting to think about as if you were, like, looking into a crystal ball and you could see all the elements of your research study through multiple lenses and different lenses. So I think that was a very interesting visual way to think about this type of research. As I mentioned, this is kind of where you can take the participants' feelings and thoughts about the process um, into account along with all the numbers. you got to dig deeper, dig beneath the surface, below the how they got, how they did on their assessment score, right? And we also read about the thought process of researchers over time. Um, one point, there was a period where we thought about it in terms of positiv positivism. And then now, today, we're kind of moving towards what is uh, considered post-positivism. So positivism is the idea that knowledge is describing things we directly experience and observe. So what's right in front of us? What are our experiences? That's what we know. If we can't directly observe or measure it, things like thoughts and emotions, 
then it's not only worth studying and not helpful to the contributions of science. That's how positivists think about this type of stuff. I think about visions of scientists in lab coats observing rats in a cage and observing their reactions to the experiments. You know, stuff like that. You're doing a direct experiment. You're making observations as to what's happening. You're writing them down. It's, you can tangibly put a number or a qualification to it, so it, it makes sense to you that way. Positivists view science as useful to understand and explain the world, a way to get to, quote, the truth about things. And even though this article describes their views as having moved away from the positivist view, there's still some remnants of it in our 21st century society. And what do you think I'm referring to here? So, for example, think about the importance we place on the standardized tests, right? In some, depending on, and it's different depending on your school district and where you're located and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff like that. But just the idea that the vast importance that's placed upon these standardized test scores to the point where, like, the school shuts down while it's happening and be quiet in the hallway and don't make a sound because these kids might get distracted. And there's so much, like, pressure, whether it's self-induced pressure by the student themselves or pressure from within or above and beyond the school. It's kind of crazy. The importance placed upon these scores to the point where they could impact an educator's or an administrator's job security and even beyond that, to the point where housing values in a community or in a neighborhood could, you're looking at a place to move, you're moving into a new area. The idea that housing values or how a neighborhood is rated or how a school is rated in that context, based on how kids do on a test they take once a year, it's kind of crazy. But... I think of that as an example of this positivist type viewpoint where kids take a test, we get these scores, it it makes sense. You can see, okay, they did well, they didn't do well, it's black and white, there's numbers you can report to people that need to be reported to. It's kind of all you can tangibly explain whether it's good or bad based on those numbers. There's like a passing score and a pass advance score and stuff like that. Very, I, I consider that as even though we're moving away from this positive this viewpoint, according to this article, we're still very much, in some areas of our society, we're still very much have this viewpoint. Um, there has been a shift away from, as I mentioned before, what is known as post-positivism. Post-positivists recognize there's not a significant difference between the way scientists think and approach their work and the way people think and approach their everyday life. That's kind of an interesting thing to think about. They're scientists. They approach their work very carefully. They use specific procedures. They use specific methods because they want consistent results with every experiment they want or if they're trying to establish something as explain it as the way things work, you want to have consistent results when you're doing those experiments. If you are 
programming a robot to do something, you want to continually test and tweak and try to follow the same procedures in order to get consistent results. I think about the first Lego League where there's, or just any robotics program where you're um, <clears throat> excuse me, having a robot do accomplish something, you program a robot to do something. You set it on the field, you want to set your starting position consistently every time so that you can attempt to get consistent results. That's how I think scientists approach their work, okay? And people in everyday life are not always as careful as the scientists are with their reasoning and their measurements. When you're cooking, are you always measuring exactly to the letter all the ingredients, or are you sometimes eyeballing it? This looks good, maybe a pinch of that, or about this much of this. You kind of, you know, eyeball it and you, it's close enough. There's not always situations where, with something like that, where you have to be exact and consistent with your procedures every time, right? There are exceptions to this, however, and in certain high-stakes situations. Like, for example, if you've got small children home or infant or toddler, you're going to be very careful with how much formula you give them or, you know, just your supervision <clears throat> of them while they're interacting with the world or how you keep your house clean and child safe. There's a much... much higher stakes than certain other things in our aspects of our everyday life, so you're more careful and paying more attention in situations like that. Post-positivists emphasize the importance of multiple measures in observation and research and triangulating those to get a better idea of what's happening. Those two views tie into the methods of research we're studying with I think quantitative research is more like the positivist view and qualitative research is more like the post-positivist. Because like I said before, you're getting to, you're digging deeper, but you're also going to have different methods of data or different examples, several different samples that you can combine together to make a conclusion. It's not just black and white. You gave a test, you gave a pre-test, you give a post-test. Here's the numbers. Here's the difference. That kind of thing. All right. So we're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. And we'll be back right after this. All right. We're back. So just to kind of put a bow onto the previous conversation, I think the both approaches are good. And I think qualitative research allows you to, with the standardized um, test procedure, there's so many other parts to the the story of a student and their life and their academic what they're learning that you need some qualitative research you need multiple methods involved in order to really get the big picture and i think technology beyond just taking the computer uh, a quantitative assessment on a computer you can, there's many technology tools out there like Seesaw, for example, or Flipgrid or um, Wixi. These tools where students can either use it to create something or it can help the teacher and the student 
paint the picture of what the students are learning and really give them an opportunity to show what they learn in multiple ways. And I think that's really good if we can, we can do that. All right, so going off on the next, the next step, we kind of started talking about in our class the idea of designing a qualitative research study and the different approaches you can take to qualitative research. Um, those approaches include grounded theory, narrative research, ethnographic research, phenomenological research, and case studies. So di different approaches, um, and we'll touch on these more in future episodes as we dive into, as I dive into each one and kind of reflect back on it as, as we're going through. And according to Cresswell and Paul, there are many elements involved in a well-designed qualitative research study. These elements include a single focus to be explored, ethics, a rigorous approach to data collection, and using a recognized approach to the study. One aspect that stood out to me during the readings was there was a researcher spending extensive time in the field during the study. Kind of makes perfect sense if you're especially doing something qualitatively, you want to be able to spend as much time as possible to gather as much information to make a logical conclusion, hopefully from what you've collected. But I wonder if, and as we were having discussions in class, I kind of wondered about is there like a specific defined amount of what extensive time means? Like, for example, could you do your study if you were a, if the researcher was a teacher in the classroom and you were designed a unit to conduct your research during a six week unit or eight weeks or whatever length of time, could you conduct an effective study during that period of time? And after many discussions with my classmates and professors and stuff, it seems to be that it kind of depends. It depends on where like the six week thing that I just approached could certainly be done. Um, and it kind of depends on what you're trying to accomplish, what topics you're studying, what depends on the size of your groups and different things like, like that. I read an article by Friesen that stood out as it was an analysis of Russell's study from 1999 and the lack of conclusive findings in the area of educational technology that have been found to show a significant difference with outcomes as a result of implementing said technology in the classroom. There's not enough black and white, here you go, you do this and it makes this difference. Um, even though Russell's work was published 20 years ago, Still, even today, there doesn't seem to be a wealth of these studies out there that decisively state the specific impacts of educational technology on student learning. It feels to me like some of these things we're trying to do as technology coaches to diffuse the innovations and convince people to, you know, try new things and integrate these new tools and come up with these new innovative ideas in the classroom might go over a lot easier if there was, if we had that definitive studies to tie our hat to there. Some of those conversations might happen, might go over a lot, a lot easier. And reading about the different approaches, 
on the surface, and like I said, we're going to dive into this more in our class going forward. But I seem to be leaning towards the idea of like a grounded theory, which I'll elaborate on in a minute, or a case study approach. So I haven't zeroed in on the topic I end up planning to choose, but I think looking at the experiences of the students or participants involved is very important. A narrative approach may come into play if there happens to be one participant, one student that stands out as being unique during the study. Uh, I think back to a couple years ago, we did a Minecraft lesson with the second grade class, and there was one student in particular that stood out to me because I had known him as someone who was a struggling reader, but in this context of this lesson, he was a avid Minecraft player at home, and this was a great opportunity for this student to stand out. And, you know, he was, he knew how to play the game, so he was able to help other students uh, navigate through the world as we were doing our lesson, other students who were less experienced. So that was a student who, so something like that, examples of a student in a situation like that would be the cause for a really good uh, narrative approach, telling the story of this one participant. As I was thinking about these things, my professor had pointed out that what I had said earlier about different things coming into play and maybe focusing in a different direction as the study's going on, which is a great example of the emergent nature of a qualitative research design. So you might start out with a broad approach, your topic, and then as things are going in, you might narrow your focus, you might focus on a particular case, you might have, things may take a different direction depending on the information you collect. It's very interesting. And that kind of leads me to talking about the grounded research theory approach, which we studied last week. Grounded research theory, I think, is best applied in contexts where there's unclear uh, processes or unestablished theories. Uh, stated by Cresswell and Poth in 2017. I think this theory is very interesting and seems it could be conductive when researching topics like emerging technologies that may not have had a ton of prior research written about them. I also think that this method could be used to develop research that is, um, as Baldwin, Ching, and Friesen state, grounded in practice and reflects the reality of what teachers are doing. So when I'm thinking about my own research, topics related to game-based learning may be a good fit with this particular theory. Finding a group of willing educators as a participant group, implementing a new idea in their classrooms, and then kind of see where we go from there, see where the research takes us, get involved in the students' perceptions and that kind of thing. And Baldwin, Ching, and Friesen's article was discussing the concept and the study of an online course design and development amongst college and university educators and analysis using grounded theory. So in this particular example, if you had a group of instructors at a college and they were all of a sudden, you know, they're uh, brick and mortar face-to-face -face instructors, and then the idea of online learning, okay, you're going to take on an online class as part of your part of your deal, and they would approach it and teach that class just like they would their face-to-face -face class. Kind of the whole idea of, well, what is this 
work? Have they really had formal training in uh, online course design? All those questions kind of came came into play and came into our discussions. And interesting, I think you kind of got to start somewhere. So if you're put in a situation where you're teaching something for the first time, maybe you haven't fully been ingrained in or trained in the methods of how to do that, but you kind of give it your best effort and go utilize your experience and go best what you can. And I hear time to, from time to time the idea of, well, yeah, that research is all great, but they don't know my kids, they don't work in my classroom, you know, that kind of stuff. So we kind of tend to put off or disregard some of this um, research. And I think one of the points we get from the article is the grounded theory and whatever the reality might be could be a good basis for helping to develop these strong methods for you know improving the situation. Great, it started out like this, but does not always need to end up that way. You can get better, you can learn, you can you know develop and take what, however things start and continue to grow. It's like, I'm not good at this today, but it's not a permanent condition. You can learn and do research and get better and all those good things. You might also not want to start with having a theory in mind already that you're trying to prove because that could lead to potential bias and that kind of stuff. Whereas if you're just, hey, let's try this out and see where it takes us, and then you collect data, and then you kind of develop your theory based off the data you collected and based off the reality of what's going on and all the information, that to me seems like grounded theory might be an interesting uh, way to approach your qualitative research. Back to wrap it up right after this. Thanks so much again, everybody, for listening. That's going to wrap up our show for this week. You can reach out to me with questions at uh, Mr. Ward Techie, that's T-E-C-H-I-E, at gmail.com. You can tweet at me, at Mr. Ward Techie. And I'm curious to know what you guys think. What is your opinions of the discussion we've had today about qualitative research and uh, grounded theory in particular? What do you think about it? What um, do you really... Um, consult a lot of research when you're making your educational uh, teaching decisions, how, you know, how do things work in your environment that you work in, you know, let's have a, get a discussion going. Feel free to tweet if you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for your support. Let's tell your friends about it. And I'd like to, you know, we want to grow our audience here and continue the discussion. Um, so yeah, that's going to do it for this week. Thanks very much. We will see you in the next episode. Take care. EdTech to the future.